Well, today I'm going to not really continue. I'm going to piggyback off of the first message, the first opportunity, the first uh, privilege I've had to proclaim the word, I guess, if you want to call it a sermon, was uh, when I was uh, a sophomore in high school at Tennessee Temple High School. My dad had retired early at 62. Remember, I was the seventh child, so uh, we had all moved down. I came down here in my freshman year in high school and actually lived with uh, one of my older brothers who was married and trying to finish up his college degree at Temple. And then dad retired early at 62 the summer after my freshman year in high school, which lets you know that he was in his mid to late 40s when I was born. And uh, then we all moved down here, so uh, I was actually living with, in my house with my parents my sophomore year. But anyway, uh, they had uh, Dr. Robertson, the uh, founder of Tennessee Temple, and of course the longtime pastor at Highland Park Baptist Church. This thing is right up in front of me. But anyway, uh, he liked sports. I mean, anybody here that went to Temple knows he liked sport, but he really had a really liked basketball. So uh, we had what he—they had what they termed a sports Sunday this Sunday in uh, in 1976. So uh, I don't know if anybody else that went to Temple was there in 1976, but he had a sports Sunday, and for some reason he had the high school basketball team. We all came dressed in our uh, warm-up uniforms and everything and actually set up in the choir loft behind the pulpit there during that service that morning. I don't know why I chose the high school team over the college team, but anyway, all my teammates that didn't even go to Highland Park were asked to come there. So all my, myself and my teammates were sitting in the <laughs> choir loft in our uh, warm-up outfits in our tennis shoes and all that on Sports Sunday in 1976, and I was all of... Uh, 15, because I didn't turn 16 until uh, March that year. So, for some reason, my coach uh, came to me. Coach Ken Turner was his name, but asked me if I would. We were somebody was supposed to deliver a 20-minute message or something, and I don't remember if I ran over, <laughs> but uh, maybe, maybe I did. I don't know. But anyway, he came to me. I don't know why he didn't want to do it. <laughs> or the assistant coach, but he came and asked me if I wanted to deliver the 20-minute uh, message on Sports Sunday. So I chose this passage in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, way back then. Uh, for the, and that's where we will start off. That'll be, I guess, the text of this message. But I've titled this message, Let's Go Racing. And any of you NASCAR fans, like my buddy John Giles back in the, uh, I didn't say boogity, 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 let's go racing, because I was afraid old D.W., Daryl Waltrip, the longtime NASCAR driver, and then the announcer who just recently retired, uh, he sort of coined that term when they were going to start a race on television, on the broadcast. He'd say, boogity, 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 let's go racing. So I thought he might have had that copyrighted, not that DW is going to be listening in on YouTube this morning. But, but anyway, the title is not that, but it's Let's Go Racing. 
Let's go racing. Let's open up in a word of prayer. Father, we just do thank you for who you are, Yahweh, the God of all gods, and for Jesus Christ, your Son, and what he's done for each and every one of us. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that you've given to us, particularly in this dispensation, and we pray that uh, as we open the, your word, that your word would go forth and not what man has to say about it. Pray that we'd all have eyes to see and ears to hear this morning, and we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, let's go racing. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Oftentimes, obviously, the writer of Hebrews here in this, this passage used a athletic analogy or uh, uh, actually running a race uh, and Paul often did that too in his epistles uh, if you, you don't have to turn there but I have it in first uh, Corinthians chapter 9 verse 24 Paul used this same racing analogy of running a race he said know ye not that they which run in a race run all but one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain the prize, obviously. <laughs> and every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway or be rejected or be disapproved. The Greek word there is adokimos. Uh, so, the ah negates the dokimos, which means to be approved. So ah dokimos would be to be disapproved at the judgment seat, obviously. So Paul used this, and I'm not saying that Paul wrote Hebrews. I know that I'm just saying that Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews used the same racing analogy that Paul used off in, back in 1 Corinthians, and that he used other kinds of physical activity analogies in uh, some of his other epistles. So let's go racing. And obviously back there in 1976 as a 15-year-old, I started talking about, you know, running a race. And, you know, if you watch the Olympics, you know, that come around every four years or whatever, or if you watch sports, now you can watch sports on television all the time, every day, whatever you want to do. But back then and back in the day when we had three stations, <laughs> You know, and uh, but the Olympics would come around. You'd see those, 
the athletes running in the different style races and everything. And obviously they were outfitted and I ran junior high track, but then when I got to Temple High School, they didn't have a track team. They had a cross country team every once in a while, but we didn't really have a track program. But in junior high, you know, you, when you're working out or you're preparing for the race, a lot of times you might run with weights on your ankles or this or that, or you, you, you have the warm-ups just like we were wearing that Sunday morning. Of course, they didn't want us to come in our basketball shorts and a, or whatever, but they, they did have us come in uniform with our full sweats on and all that, sitting up in the choir lot before I got up to speak there in 1976 on Sports Sunday. But, you know, you have all that warm-up attire and all that kind of stuff that you, that you wear, and you might train with weights and stuff and run with weights on your legs. Or uh, the great runner Roger Bannister, who was the first guy that broke the four-minute mile, said he used to run on the beach in sand and everything, run up hills in the dunes. But when it came time to run the race, he was running on a flat, hard surface, Right? Same thing baseball nowadays. You see the baseball, when a hitter's getting ready, he's in the on-deck circle. They put those weights on their bat, and when they're swinging to get ready, to, but you never saw a hitter go up to the plate with the weight still on his bat, right? Well, that's the same thing here. And this, this analogy, if we get back into verse 1 of chapter 12, it says, therefore, and therefore, you know, the whole thing, Whenever you see therefore in scripture, see what it's there for. But uh, that's actually the Greek word. It's, uh, it's an inferential particle. It's called, I don't know how to pronounce it, but it's toigaron, I believe, I'm, if I'm close to that. It's T-O-I-G-A-R-O-U-N in the English, if you just translate it into English lettering. But, but it really has the idea of for that very reason then. And that's going back to the end of chapter 11. So if you look back at the end of chapter 11, remember what is chapter 11 in Hebrews? It's the great faith chapter, right? Has a long list of all the Old Testament saints that lived by faith. Remember, the just shall live by faith. Well, you get down towards the end of the chapter, it lists all those people that had come to the goal of their faith because they walked by faith. And it comes down to the end of the chapter in verse 39, it says, And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised, because it was yet future. Verse 40, because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect or complete. They would not receive the promise. And it doesn't mean that we as quote unquote New Testament believers have something better than they did. It means that they, when they're going to receive the promise, awaits the same time that we're going to receive our promise. That yet future day. Because even though these Old Testament saints, even though, remember, the nation of Israel, when Jesus Christ came the first time, rejected the offer of the kingdom of the heavens. 
But that didn't negate them receiving their promise because they had lived by faith. But see, even though they, all those people mentioned in chapter 11 had received a good testimony, had gained approval, verse 39, they still haven't received the promise. Because they're going to receive the promise at the same time we'll receive our promise if we are approved at the judgment seat of Christ. So that's why leading in, remember the chapter divisions in Scripture are not inspired, so that's leading in right into chapter 12. So that's why I say that togaron, or however you pronounce that Greek word, could better be translated, for that very reason then, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us. And who, are, who is that cloud of witnesses? All those people back in chapter 11. And that term witnesses, that's not meaning that they're sitting in the stands like spectators watching us. It means that we should be looking at the example that they set by walking by faith and living by faith. We should be looking at how they lived their life through their pilgrim journey and act accordingly. It's not that they're sitting, like I say, up in the stands watching us. That's not what that term witnesses means. It's that they lived their life in such a way that they put forth a good testimony, a good witness, and we should look at that and say, that's how we should live, by faith. By faith. Let us, verse 12, 1 also still, let us also lay aside every encumbrance, every encumbrance. And once again, when a uh, runner or something was warming up, he might have on his sweatpants and a shirt and he's warming up and he might be doing this or like I said, the hitter with the weight on the bat. But when it came time to actually run the race, they took off all the warm-ups and everything and laid aside every weight, every encumbrance. And they wanted to have the least encumbrance while they're running the race. Well, that's the same thing for us in our spiritual race. We've got to get rid of all the distractions. And actually, the English word gymnasium comes from the Greek word gumnos, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right either. It's G-U-M-N-O-S, which actually means naked. Because in the ancient Olympics, the dudes actually run naked. Because only men were allowed to spectate. So even though they, their normal wear back then, obviously, was the inner and outer tunics and the long flowing robes and the sandals and all that, they didn't run they didn't try to cinch up the, the tunics or the robe. And run. They ran naked. They laid aside all that stuff because they couldn't run in a flowing robe and a tunic and in and outer garments and all that. They ran barefooted and just naked. <clears throat> Lay aside, and it's not necessarily that these encumbrances are in and of themselves sinful. It's anything that can hinder you from running the race successfully. Might be something good. You know what I mean? 
Like there's nothing wrong with making money, right? But if that becomes your focal point, right? If you're chasing the money in your job or in your career, you're chasing the money so you can get, live the good life, and that becomes a distraction for you, that's an encumbrance. So literally, the ancient Olympians ran naked. They laid aside every encumbrance. And we need to get rid of all the distractions to run the race successfully. And in a NASCAR event or in the March Madness, which didn't even take place this year because of the coronavirus, or the baseball playoffs, since I used the baseball analogy earlier, teams have to play during the season to get into those playoffs. Or racers, NASCAR drivers, have to go through their qualifying laps and see if they qualify for the race and all that stuff. In this race, you don't have a choice. Once you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, you're in the race. So you don't have a choice of whether you want to run in the race or whether you don't want to run in the race. Once you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, you were in the race. Now it's up to you how you run the race because right here in verse 12, 1, 2 of Hebrews chapter 12, he gives us instructions. God's not the author of confusion. <laughs> so he gives us instructions of how we're supposed to run the race. So it's up to you whether you want to follow the instructions, but it's not up to you whether you want to run in the race or not. Once you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you're in the race. Now, a lot of Christians, you know, in a lot of churches, you don't, it's all about eternal verities, right? Your eternal salvation, heaven or hell, turn or burn. But that's not the, that is not the, focus of the writer of Hebrews, nor is that the focus of any other New Testament epistle. <laughs> and we're not minimizing the gospel of grace or the cross of Jesus Christ because it's all based on his death and shed blood on the cross. But what I'm saying is that is not the focus of the, the writer of Hebrews, nor any other New Testament epistle, nor this book in general. Because as we've said before, this book is a book of redemption, but there's a whole lot more to the book, you know, to the redemption story than you getting saved. Obviously, there's that purpose for salvation that you don't hear in most, like you don't hear about the race in most churches. Because that's talking about present and future salvation, not the salvation we already possess. But see, so many people, and that's like I said, I've told you before, God used the Hebrews 6 warning. Now, the book of Hebrews is built around five warning passages. I just kept stumbling over the Hebrews chapter 6 one because of any explanation I got from reading some dude's book on Hebrews or sitting in a class on Hebrews. I took an elective of Hebrews at Tennessee Temple. But I never could 
None of that ever really made any sense to me of what I was reading in Hebrews chapter 6. Because they take it, because of the harsh language, they say, well, that's talking about saved and unsaved stuff. And it's not. Hebrews chapter 1, go back there real quickly. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in son, whom he appointed heir of all things. Right there you have an inheritance that comes into view. When's he going to get his inheritance? In that future day that this whole book points to the seventh day starts right in Genesis and then in chapter one goes on and he, he quotes seven messianic passages in that chapter one itself leading into the first warning about no, not neglecting so great salvation and that's not talking about the salvation we already uh, have our spirit salvation obviously he's, all those seven passages he quotes out of the Old Testament he goes straight back to the Old Testament because once again there's nothing in the new that wasn't first already in the old so he quotes seven messianic passages about Jesus Christ right there in the first chapter it leads right into the first warning don't neglect so great salvation, but it's based on a future inheritance. He is the appointed heir of all things. <clears throat> Lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And it is articular there in that verse in the Greek. The sin. It's talking about a particular sin. And I've heard some other messages on this. And they try to say, well, that's talking about, you know, like, you know, uh, this believer might have a weakness in this area. And this believer might. And you, we all have a besetting sin, you know, like maybe I got a problem with cussing. You know, that's my beset. That's not what this is saying. Okay. It's saying that is a, it is articular and it's the sin that easily entangles us. Well, if you stay in context, what was just chapter 11 about? The great faith chapter, right? So it's not talking about a particular sin that Jack has a problem with and a particular sin I have a problem with or my brother Mark Summers has a problem with. It's the same sin that we all have a problem with. And that's lack of faith. Because you stay in the context of the book of Hebrews and you're coming right out of the great faith chapter. And this is articular. The sin that entangles all of us is a lack of faith. So if you stumble, if I have a problem with cussing, and whenever I get a little upset about something, I start, you know, spewing out cuss words. It's not because that's my particular besetting sin. It's because 
Any sin that we, that we commit really goes back to why didn't you believe God about that in that area of your life? Because remember, faith and belief, faith's a noun, believe is the verb. All those chapter 11 walk by faith. So that can only be in context, the besetting sin, articular, is the fact that Whatever area of life that you're struggling in is because you have a lack of faith. You have a lack of faith. It's just the opposite of what the, all those mentioned in chapter 11 did have. They walked by faith. And that didn't mean they had never stumbled. Remember Abraham? If you look at Abraham, remember his journey. And also, this race is not a sprint. Okay, it's a marathon. Goes on through your whole pilgrim journey on this earth. Now, you might be called on to sprint every once in a while. Remember, flee youthful lusts. So you might be asked to sprint every once in a while, but you can't sprint through the whole race. You know the old, ter- old adage, I'd rather burn out than rust? or burn out, then fade away. Well, neither one of those approaches is good for this race. Because <laughs> neither one of them ends up where you get to the goal. Finishing the race. Because if you burn out, then that means you've exhausted yourself by sprinting, and then you just have to drop out, and you quit, and you don't finish the race. And if you rust... That's more like a lot of Christians that don't even know about their you know, present and future salvations because they base everything off. They think that when they got saved, they crossed the finish line. I'm glad I got that out of the way. I'm going to heaven when I die. I crossed the finish line. No, you just got in the race. You just joined the race. But those that rust out, that's like because they don't even know about the race or they're not running it accordingly. Remember, those that strive got to strive lawfully. You got to play by the rules. And here's where you find the rules, right here. But the the rust part of it, it's like they never got out of the starting blocks. They don't even know they're in a race. But that didn't get you to the finish line either. So burning out or rusting out, neither one of those is the way we'd, we should go about the race. The sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance. And that's the Greek word, hupomone. I know I'm butchering those, but that's okay. It's H-U-P-O-M-O-N-E in English. Hupomone. All right? And really, that's patient endurance. Patient endurance. And that's why we said this is a marathon, people. It's not a sprint. And actually, turn to James. One book over, James chapter 1, you see verse 3 and 4? It 
Same word there translated there. Let's just start at verse 1 of chapter, uh, James chapter 1. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. Greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of the faith, that's articular there, produces patient endurance. Same word. We have to endure, but we have to endure patiently. Verse 4. And let patient endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Same word should be translated patient endurance there in James also. Trials are going to come, right? He James tells you that all those who will live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Trials and testings will come. They're allowed by God. That's really our training. See, our training takes place while we're running the race. We don't train for the race and then take off all the weights and our warm-up suit and then run the race. We're actually going through the tr testing, the trials, while we're running the race. And we're expected to grow from immaturity to maturity as a believer while we're going through these trials and testings and patiently enduring them. Second Timothy two, verse twelve. If I can find it. <clears throat> I'll start in verse eleven. It is a trustworthy statement, for if we died with him. Remember, Paul said, I die daily. We will also live with him if we endure. Same word. If we patiently endure, we will also reign with him if we deny him. Now, that Greek word for deny is arneomai. Okay, I, I know that's probably not right, but... Arneomai, and actually could be translated uh, refuse, which might be better in these verses here as far as the context and what it's trying to say. So if we refuse, and the hymn is not there in the Greek. It's not that we're refusing Jesus Christ. It's if, we're ref if we refuse to patiently endure. See, the translators threw the hymn in there, which you're not denying Jesus Christ. It's if you refuse, not deny, but if you refuse to patiently redure, endure, excuse me, he also will refuse you. Instead of deny, he will refuse you. Where, when, when will he refuse you? At the judgment seat of Christ. 
If we refuse to patiently endure, he also will refuse you a position with him in the coming kingdom. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny or refuse himself. Same, same word, patiently doer. Instead of suffer, yes, we are going to suffer, but if in, 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 the, in my NASB, they actually do put it endure, but it's actually patiently endure. It's the same, same Greek word, verb form of it. Go back to James again, chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed is a man who patiently endures under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of the life, and it's articular there, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Same word again. Blessed is a man who patiently endures under trials. It's a marathon race, people. This pilgrim walk in this world that's not our home, it's a marathon. And we're called to patiently endure, patiently run the race through the trials and tribulations that are allowed to come into our life. so that we can grow from immaturity to, ma to maturity. And the only way to do that is if you look farther down into James, is let the engrafted word, the implanted word, come into your saved human spirit, and under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, you can come to an understanding of this book. The implanted word. Because the implanted word, the word, its origin is this God-breathed, right? Spirit, the pneuma in the New Testament, the neshama in the Hebrew. The spirit, remember that's, in, that's life. Remember man was created from the dust of the ground. But then what happened? He was still just a body of dirt laying there until the in-breathing. He breathed in him, his nostrils the breath, the neshama of life. And this word is active and living, Hebrews 4, because it's God-breathed. But see, we get in passages like, do not be drunk with wine, but, remember it's a comparative statement, be filled with the Spirit. And we say, well, how do you get filled with the Spirit? Then you have whole denominations and offshoots that think it's because you've got to run up and down the aisles and, and shoot boot and gibberish or whatever and get the extra Spirit. The, uh, you don't get any more Spirit than what you got when you got saved. 
But the way you get filled with the Spirit is you get in this book. <laughs> you allow the engrafted word into your saved human spirit, and then you can grow thereby. Grow up. My older brothers and sisters used to say that to me all the time. Because they thought I was a little too hyper and a little too fun-loving, I guess. And even when I got 15, 16, 17, 18, they said, said, you need to grow up. Nah, that's okay. My wife still thinks I act a little too much like a child sometimes, too, I'm sure. Don't ask her about it, but I mean... But what uh, Ken was saying earlier, my dad always used to have a thing he'd say to me. You know, if I was a little frustrated about it, son, don't waste a minute's time worrying about stuff out of your control. And so that's sort of how I've tried to live. I don't always live by that byline or whatever, but uh, I try to most of the time. And Angie thinks it's like lethargy most of the time because... Women, you know, I just don't react quite like, you know, I, sh- I won't say women do because I don't want all the uh, ladies in the audience to not social distance as I'm trying to get out to my car after the, you know, because I made that statement. But anyway, uh, it's a marathon, okay? It goes on through this whole pilgrim walk, and we got to run it. By the instruction book, we got to strive lawfully, play by the rules, patiently endure through all the trials and testings, and get in this book. Let's go racing. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for this day. We thank you once again for your word and the ability still in this day and time to openly preach your word. And we pray that your word went forth this morning and we'd all have eyes to see and ears to hear. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.